You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back. And once again, and I say this all the time because I am biased. I think these conversations that I have with people are really good and they open up, um, I guess, they open up conversation about what normal people are doing uh, to find success whether it is in the woods and not, not even just hunting strategy, but open up conversations about conservation or, you know, uh, topics like what we're going to be talking about today. And that is, um, coon hunting or hunting with hounds period. And, uh, today's guest is another sportsman's nation brother. His name is Chris Powell. He is the, um, the host of the houndsman XP podcast. And I must say, um, it's a really good podcast. Uh, even if you don't know anything or you're not really interested in hound hunting or hunting like coon hunting with dogs the information and just the passion that these guys have for their heritage and and the culture of uh hound hunting and coon hunting and all that stuff really shows in the podcast and uh chris is as passionate of a guy as you can find about the outdoors i mean not only uh, a lot of the conversation today revolves around um hunting with dogs but the just he's an overall outdoorsman an overall sportsman he turkey hunts he he deer hunts he does other things outside uh, other than um the uh you know other than a coon hunt and and hunt with dogs but i'm telling you right now it's just a really good podcast and there's a lot that you can learn from it but at the same time not necessarily learn but understand uh a different point of view Right, because I was always under the uh, impression that, uh, oh Jesus, here comes a coon hunter during the rut, and they're just going to spook all my deer out and all this stuff. Well, whether you believe that or not, it doesn't really matter because they have equal rights to the land. And once I started thinking about it, like, dude, what if I was ruining somebody else's hunt doing what I like to do, or ruining, I don't know, 
something as as weird as bird watching, right? If I came through and I spooked a bird up and some guy was like, dude, I spend all my time, energy, and money uh, watching birds and you just spooked something off that I've been wanting to see my entire life or whatever. I don't, I don't know. That might be a bad example, but um, we, we all have rights um, to the land. We all have, uh, you know, public land that is. We all... Um, you know, especially for me, man, I have knock on door permission. Uh, and the guy who coon hunts that property also has knock on door permission. So he has the same rights to that land that I do. And instead sitting getting mad about it. I just kind of now shrug it off and, um, uh, you know, just deal with it because he has equal rights to that, you know, as I do. And I just go somewhere else or I, I uh, wait for the, the timber to, to kind of settle down a little bit and then I get back at it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just how I handle it. We also talk about, and if you've, you've been in the, uh, on social and I'm sure you've seen it or on, on all the outdoor uh, websites and forums and stuff, you're seeing a lot of states trying to pass laws to ban hunting with dogs whether that's hunt, you know, any type of hunting, really, whether it's coon hunting, whether it is uh, mountain lion hunting, bear hunting, anything with dogs, people are trying to get rid of. And so Chris does a really good job of explaining why that is, why he thinks that's wrong. Um, you know, he, he voices his side of the story, his opinions and all that stuff. And uh, I tell you what, um, I really like having him on the Sportsman's Nation because not only is his podcast great, his point of view and my personal opinion is great, and it's what that um, that niche of outdoorsmen needs to hear. So uh, that's just uh, my POV of the of the whole situation, and, and what you're going to get in this uh, in this podcast today, man. I really do hope you enjoy it. I really think you should listen to it because it is just another example of a, another part of our hunting community, and that at the end of the day we really shouldn't be taking sides, uh, you know, like united we stand, divided we fall type of approach, right? Um, and as the antis are trying to, you know, pick us off one at a time, basically, uh, this is an opportunity for us to understand um, a, just a different commu- a part of our community. And uh, I hopefully, hopefully you guys like it. But I've kind of been rambling there. We do have to do a commercial, all right? ozonicshunting.com is where you're going to find uh you know all the information about ozonics and ozonics is one of those products that i've had a couple aha moments with um and i i I thought it was a gimmick at first until i put one in the tree with me and then i started uh, dry washing my clothes with it and it now has become a hunting product that i don't even really think about anymore it's it's just so ingrained in my strategy and so ingrained in my routine that I use it every day when I'm hunting I use it in the mornings before I get into uh, my hunting clothes I get use it in the stand and then I use it again after I get out of the stand uh, at night so I'm running dry wash cycles and it's uh, you know cleaning all the odor off of my uh, off of my clothes, I run it in the stand to uh, change basically my scent profile, and um, it's one of those things, guys, that there's science behind what this does. Like 
science, not just hocus pocus, but science and how O3 kills odor and bacteria and uh, basically just reduces scent. Uh, in a big, big way, if not kill it all. So uh, go check it out for yourself, ozonicshunting.com, and uh, be the judge, do your research, and then see what unit uh, fits your price point. They have uh, they have several different units out there. And as, as a discount, you can enter the discount code. Uh, what is it? What is it? Um, NFC21. So NFC21. And you're going to get a free dry wash bag with your purchase of any one of their units. So that's a a pretty good deal there. Next, (laughs) the next uh, uh, product we're talking about in this commercial segment is Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, uh, lonewolfhuntinggear.com. And uh, I think I've said it before, but it's like another appendage. Uh, excuse me, lonewolfhuntingproducts.com, lonewolfhuntingproducts.com. And uh, it's like another appendage, right? It goes everywhere I go. Um, I can get in any tree I want. I uh, It allows me to uh, hang a set outside of a straight tree. I, I'm not in a close enough spot. I'm in the right spot. And sometimes the right spot is a gnarly tree. And why I love the four sticks and the... Uh, and the adjustable platform and just the way it's designed and built to be um, to be fit in any tree in any scenario I can get in and I can get in the right spot and over the years the right spot has led me to the success that I've had and I don't know if I would have that success if I never had that tree stand I'd probably still be hunting field edges I'd probably still be uh, you know doing the the straight tree thing or a ladder stand or or whatever and I'm, I'm not saying that those are bad what I am saying is that if you're struggling trying to get into a location to kill a target animal or any deer sometimes you may have to move outside of your comfort zone and that is getting a product that can get you in the right spot not the close enough spot but the right spot so uh, go check out um, I'm a huge fan of the assault and four sticks so go check out lonewolfhuntingproducts.com and at uh, checkout if you do decide to purchase something I can save you somewhere between 20 to 25% on your purchase. So 9FC21, 9FC21, and that's going to get you uh, a discount of $50 off of all purchases over $200. So you buy a stand, you're getting 50 bucks off, and that's going to be somewhere around that 20 to 25% range. So uh, take advantage of that. And now we're done with the commercial. So let's get into today's podcast that I've titled an American houndsman, uh, with my good buddy, Chris Powell. Two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, a fellow sportsman's nation brother, Chris Powell of the houndsman XP podcast. How are we doing, man? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm doing good. Finally, it's uh, it's warmed up a little bit here in the Midwest. The last two days have been absolutely gorgeous. So I'm uh, the kids are starting to play outside more and more, and that just means that they're more tired at the end of the day, and that means it's easier for them to go to bed, which means it's easier for me, and that's really what it's all about. <laughs> I hear you. It's also uh, time to start mowing grass. Who's yeah. Supposed, who, who ever thought that was a good idea? I don't know. Like having, <laughs> having yards, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't know. I, I, I tell you what though, 
one of my favorite escapes from reality is mowing the yard. Man, I can find other stuff to do besides that to escape reality. I've got a I've got a bunch here to mow. We've got fifty six acres. We probably I mow way too much of it. But um, dang, yeah, I don't I don't I don't mow that. A lot of it's wooded. Yeah, but uh, a lot of mowing, and then when it's not that, it's hay, which I can I can justify cutting hay. Yeah, there's actually use for it. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, uh, me, it's because, uh, you know, and, and on a really bad week when the kids are kind of driving me nuts, I might mow the yard twice, you know, like make it look, <laughs> make it look real good. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. well, I, um, I want to, you've never been on the, the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast before, and that's my fault. Uh, I, I uh, you've been long time listener, first time caller. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> I kind of want to start back at the very beginning and do a, a short hunter profile with you about where you're from. Um, uh, talk a little bit about your background with the, we mil- got something going on there, Dan. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Now I can hear you again. All right. One second. All right. You can hear me now. Yes, sir. All right, cool. All right. So, uh, I kind of want to, uh, take it all the way back. I want to talk a little bit about uh, your introduction into hunting. I want to talk a little bit about the military. I want to talk about, you know, the Houndsman XP podcast, and then uh, eventually some things that are kind of a hot topic right now uh, in hunting and sporting dogs throughout the United States. So the first question I have uh, for you is, where are you from, and what was your introduction into the outdoors like? I grew up in... Uh, Columbus, Indiana, South Central Indiana, and uh, grew up on uh, kind of, well, we grew up in a farming community. We had a very small farm there, but uh, for us, it was it was rural, rural living, so uh, our recreation was outdoors, yeah. and so there was just a natural progression into that. You know, when I grew up, it was... Um, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner was all about rabbit hunting in the morning and, um, you know, dinner and, and then storytelling. And, and there was always, uh, uh, a lot of attention and a lot of energy put towards hunting. And, uh, it, we didn't have a lot of deer in that, that part of, uh, Indiana at the time that I'm, I'm talking, uh, through the seventies and early eighties. So people had to travel for deer, deer hunting. So small game hunting was, was a very big thing. And, uh, Indiana is kind of a hotbed. I don't think there's any state in the country that has got a stronger history, uh, for especially raccoon hunting with hounds than the state of Indiana. Really? Some of the, yeah, some of the most historical breeders, uh, started right here in Indiana. You take somebody like Lester Nance, who is coined the father of the Tream Walker Coonhound, the most popular breed of hound in the in the world. Yeah. And uh, Lester is from right here in Indiana, a little town called. Um, I'm gonna get it wrong. I, I'm I'm gonna skip that. But he he <laughs> he. Uh, <laughs> I had him confused with another houndsman, uh, uh, Leroy Hogg, a World War II veteran, highly decorated uh, world war two veteran. And he was from Ferdinand, Indiana. And you can just go down the list and, and see the, the impact that, that the flyover state of Indiana has had in 
the world of hounds. So it was just kind of a natural progression. Gotcha. So and, so was hound hunting or having hounds always something that's been in your in your family in your life? Not not directly. Okay. Uh, my parent. My dad was not a houndsman, and my grandparents weren't houndsmen, but I did have an uncle that was a houndsman, okay. and um, that's that's where the interest started. I I just wrote an article for Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, and I laid this all out, but I remember as a small kid going over there for Thanksgiving dinner and the hounds being tied out, and you'd walk walk around the and walk around the dog yard there, and and Bart could tell you every hound and when he started naming hounds and how they were bred now that i look back at that i was looking at history those were the foundation of the hounds we have today yeah that's and that that's a culture that is so interesting to me because there's data behind every every dog right there's a lineage there's there's a family tree per se and and each one of these dogs on this family tree has a story to tell uh you know could could be a champion could be just a um, and i i I get to edit all of your podcasts which is awesome because i get to hear (laughs) some of the stories that are told in these podcasts like this dog was really good at tree and coons and then this dog was really good at something else and and then we what we wanted to do is we wanted to to take both those dogs together and then they bred a litter and uh the the most unexpected dog was the best tree, you know the coon hound and and those kind of stories you don't hear that that in-depth detail when it comes to the storytelling of like big game let's say well, you know, there are stories out there about big game hounds. It's a little more isolated and the story's not told as often. And that's why we do what we do with the Houndsman XP podcast is to tell the Houndsman story uh, because because some of those big game hounds have had uh, a significant impact on the coon hound breeds and vice versa. Some of the coon hounds have had a significant impact on big game hounds one of the one of the people that i just mentioned lester nance uh his his breeding program from the he registered the first stream walker ever and um nance blood nance breeding in the dream walker coon hound is still sought after uh among big game houndsmen same way with hammer hammer uh blood in the blue tick breed uh, the Weems blood and the the plot breed and and you know it's, the story goes on. I could I could say a bunch of names and you wouldn't have any idea who they were. But right. to houndsmen, to houndsmen, they know who they are. Yeah. So how old were you when you first started tagging along on like coon hunts or any other type of hunts with dogs? You know, I I've tried to trace that back. I've got really early memories of sitting on the front porch and listening to the hounds behind, you know, on the, in the woodlot down the road, but probably the earliest that I actually started going, uh, and tagging along would have been between 12 and 13 years old. Yeah. Okay. And what was that uh, experience? And was, uh, first, first question, were these coon hunts? And then was this, uh, like, what was your first experience like? Uh, the, they were coon hunts, uh, in Indiana. We did, we don't, did not have bear or lion. Um, so they were coon hunts, but you know, the first experiences 
it was kind of one of those deals, Dan, where, uh, you know, as a small kid, I sat there and I, I'm a romantic. So, uh, I could sit there and I could listen to the hounds and then I could relate that to stories that, that my uncle had told me about different hunts. So I'd sit there and picture it all in my head. I'd spin this big yarn up in my head. So when I started hunting, when I started going, then, then I was able to actually put my eyes and see what was actually happening out there. Um, and so it was, it was, um, it was kind of like, uh, living, living out a, a, a story, you know, yeah. like living out the red fern grows or something. Yeah. So did it hook you instantly when you started doing it or was it something that, uh, took a little bit longer to, to really sink into you? I was hooked before I ever went the first time, you know, it was, yeah. it was one of those deals. It was one of those deals where, um, you know, I'd, I'd romanticized and, and, uh, fantasized about going on a hunt that when I went, it was just like, I got to live out that dream now. Yeah. So I think I, I can honestly say I was hooked before I ever went the first time. Okay. And then how much longer, as far as, uh, hounds are concerned, how, how much time went by to you had your own and you started getting into the actual care of the dogs? Yeah. So that's kind of a funny story because, uh, um, you know, without parents that are houndsmen, they didn't understand why I would even want to be doing this. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a deal where, um, they weren't sure that I needed to have a dog or, but when they, I think it started about the same time I started working in the family business. I know, I know how old I was. I was 13 years old when I got my first hound and, uh, I was already working in the family business. So I had responsibilities there. We lived on a farm, we milked cows, we did all that stuff. And, uh, my parents knew that that, that was not going to go away. So I think they caved in a little bit and said, well, let's see how this goes. And yeah. it goes, the story starts right there. Right. And, uh, and then how old were you when, when that all took place, when you started getting your own dogs and, and, and maybe it was one, did it start off with one or did you say, Hey, give me four right away? No, no, no. I, it started off with one and it actually came from my uncle. I was 13 years old okay. and, uh, my uncle actually called the house. He knew he had seen that spark or that, you know, he, he, he recognized it. Right. And so he wanted to get me involved. And so he, he actually gave me the first hound that I ever had okay. at age 13. All right. And, and what was that? Was that a, a, a new, I mean, obviously it's a new responsibility for you, but you know, just tagging along and going on hunts. Now you actually had some additional responsibility uh, was there, was there like uh, an influx of pride? Like now it's official. I'm an official houndsman because I actually have a dog at this point. Oh yeah. I was big stuff. I, I you know, <laughs> I had, I had my own hound and, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I think about this a lot, Dan. I think about how much stuff I actually made, um, you know, for my hounds, like back when you're growing up on a farm, you've got you've got gate snaps and you've got, you know, things hanging on hooks and you, so I braided up some leather yeah. and got one of the, the gate snaps off of a oak beam in the barn 
and put that in the end so I would have a leash, you know. And uh, I sound like I'm talking like I was in, born in the 1930s. <laughs> I was born in 1969, but yeah. still, um, you know, when I grew up, it was either you, you work and spend your money or you make it. And we have what I needed to make stuff. So I made a lot of stuff. Okay. And, uh, but, and, and converting motorcycle batter, batteries over to, uh, coon hunting lights, the small, small six volt batteries that would eat holes in your Carhartt bibs and stuff. <laughs> you know, I did all that kind of stuff. It was just, uh, I was just ate up with it. Yeah. So, you know that at that age you're at the the cusp of becoming a man right you, you start to play like a lot of kids <laughs> they they play sports they start to chase girls they they start to live this social life um outside of other hobbies it's kind of something that i went through where i was really into hunting fishing hiking outdoors camping then high school hit and then it was like okay that's going to take a back seat for a while did it take a back seat or did you just fly right through that with your hounds? You know, I had a friend of mine that I played football with in high school and after football games on Friday night, we went coon hunting. I don't even know how I could do that. Cause if I yeah. played a football game right now in high school, you know, like I did in high school, I wouldn't be able to walk for a week, <laughs> you know, but when you're that age, you, you just like, let's go coon hunting. Right. You know? There's no off button. We had it. Yeah, there, there really isn't. And, uh, you know, now it's like nine o'clock at night. It's starting to get dark. And it's like, man, do I, do I want to go out and walk around in the dark tonight? Or yeah, I need to go. I need to hunt hounds. Yeah. I need to go, man. That's crazy. Um, so, and that, but, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Dan, I, I, I did everything that you just described, but my mom always said she had, we had, I've got five, four brothers and a sister. So there's six of us and she can tell you that, uh, uh, she never worried, she never worried about where I was, you yeah. know, she knew where I was. I was hunting. Yeah. That, well, that's better than uh, a lot of other stuff that, uh, a kid that age could be doing. Right. Yeah. So then you, you know, you get into high school, you, you continue to, uh, coon hunt through that whole time. Uh, when, when did the military hit? Uh, I was a sophomore in college. I actually, I just finished up my associate's degree and, um, the job that I was going to school for was going to be a, there was going to be a waiting period before they were going to hire again. So I got the bright idea. This was one of my other, one of my other lifelong ambitions was to join the military. So I joined the Marine Corps, uh, when I was 19 years old after my sophomore year of college, uh, with the plan of, uh, going into OCS and becoming an officer. And if, if it worked out and I didn't get the, the civilian job I wanted, then I'd make a career out of the Marine Corps. Yeah. Which is crazy. Because people just don't say, well, I think I'm going to go into, the, like a lot of people that I've talked to, they're, they're like, well, I'm going to wait for this job to open up. I'm just going to go to the Marine Corps. I, I like, I feel like <laughs> other people are go, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, I'm going to go work construction somewhere, or I'm going to go do this for a couple of years till the, the dream job that I want opens up, not join the Marine Corps and get your ass kicked. I'd, I'd been working since I was you know, a kid on the farm. And then our family business was right there at the house. It was a uh, sign business. Um, 
and and then my dad, my mom and dad were sep- or divorced, so my stepdad had a sign business, and m- then my uh, dad had a, a floor covering business, which my grandfather started in the 40s. So I'd been working my whole life. I didn't want to go work somewhere. I wanted to go have fun, so I joined the Marine Corps. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> that Just that wording is, sounds crazy to me. Um, so, uh, so, you know, I've talked to a lot of sportsmen who enter the military, right. And their passion takes a bit of a backseat for a, a, t- a period of time, right. They go uh, to basic and then they get deployed and then, the, you know, like all these things happen in this timeline. What was that time? Like that timeline, like for you and what did the, like, did your hounds have to take a backseat at any point during that? Absolutely. You know, the recruiter will tell you all kinds of good things to get you to, to sign on the dotted line. And I specifically remember asking him about, you know, what's the availability for hunting? I've got hounds I'd like to hunt. Oh, there's a lot of good hunting on on some of these bases. And I went to him, and it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> he got gotcha. you. He got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, I was stationed in Camp Lejeune for a while, which, you know, that's, there's a reason why there's a Marine Corps base there. It's not because it's prime real estate. Uh, there's a lot of critters there. And I was also out of California and I guarantee you that, uh, out at Camp Pendleton, and I guarantee you there hadn't been a coon walk across a raccoon walk across that place since he got off the ark. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it's just desert barren ground and, and, uh, so yeah, it did, it had to, and, um, and I deer hunted and duck hunted and did a lot of different things that all took a back backseat to that. Yeah. So, so how long were you in the military for? I did, uh, four years or two years active duty. And then I went on reserve status to, uh, go to, uh, uh, OCS and, uh, we got deployed so instead of going to OCS, that's when the Desert Storm kicked off. Yep. So I I went and went and served in Desert Storm, and then when I got back, then um, I had a career opportunity since I was already in the reserves. And I, you know, it, there's a there's a term in the Marine Corps called the Big Green Weenie. You know, the Big Green Weenie will get you every chance you let. You know, every chance it gets, it's going to get you. And, uh, so it was my turn to get the big green weenie. And instead of going to OCS, I took a job with the state of Indiana as a conservation officer. Okay. All right. So kind of spun it around. Yeah. So what year was that when you started working as a conservation officer? I uh, actually got hired, went to recruit school with state in 1990 and it's a part of my field training work in 1990. And then the Desert storm kicked off and um, I got deployed right around Thanksgiving, had to leave Saturday after Thanksgiving, 1990 and got back in the States in June of 91. Okay. And that's when you started your job as a, the, like official job as a conservation officer. Mm-hmm. Okay. All yes. Right. All right. So you're back home, you're a conservation officer. Um, and th- this is, this is great because I can, I'm going to ask you some of these questions from almost, and I'm going to have you ask, answer some of these questions from multiple points of view, right? You get to see it from okay. the conservationist side. You get to see it, fr- or uh, the 
the conservation officer side. You get to see it from the houndsman side and then maybe a, a landowner or somebody else who may not necessarily be hip with the whole dog, you know, you know, dog thing, right? You got all mm-hmm. these different points right. of view that, that you've seen. So as you, um, you know, as you take this job as a, a, a conservation officer, I take it now there's, is there still a lot of time or are, is a lot of your time still wrapped up in your job? Well, I'm retired from being a conservation. I, I meant now, back so. then. I meant back then. Okay. I've got you. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, there was a, there was a little hiatus there. I mean, I don't, I probably went about a three year period there when I did not have hounds. Um, but I still, uh, engaged in other other hunting activities right waterfowl hunting uh deer hunting i trapped you know i did a lot of that sort of stuff i with moving and new areas and and just life in general you know there was a time there where i didn't didn't have hounds but um not very long yeah so you know I, i take it that entire period of time where you didn't have hounds you were thinking about hounds Right. You were thinking about when can I get, when can I pick up this activity that I was so passionate about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when, yeah, did, when, when, did, when did that, when did that happen? When did you start getting into the time of your life? It's like the Chris Powell that I know who is this crazy coon hunter. <laughs> and I mean well, that with I, all due respect. <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you. Um, you know, it's, it's, I did start out my career as a coon hunter, as a houndsman yep. and, uh, um, have moved on to hunting a lot of different types of game, yeah. game, uh, bear and, and mountain lions, bobcats, all of it. But, uh, that probably started, I would say probably when I was 24, 25 years old, when I, you know, I kind of had, I didn't have an obligation in the Marine Corps. I wasn't living with mom and dad. I was making my own money. Boom. You know, I, I was fairly comfortable in my career as a conservation officer, having four years in at that point. So you don't know everything you think you do, but still at that point, you're kind of thinking, Hey, you know, you got the place where you're living in a place where you can keep hounds yeah. and you can't just keep them anywhere. Uh, so that was probably the time when I was like, you know what? It's time to get back into this. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, I guess at, in your max, maybe that's now, maybe it was, you know, a handful of years ago or whenever, um, at the max, how many dogs did you have at one period of time? Um, I've don't think I've had ever had more than, well, it depends on if if you're counting when a female has puppies, the, the number jumps. But, right, right. Uh, but you know, full time, my hounds that I'm taking care of, my limit is four hounds. Four hounds. Okay. All right. Uh, but probably max, I've probably had five to six yeah. at, at a time. Okay. But I found I found out that you can, you just can't you can't I cannot every person is different, but I personally cannot give the hounds the time, the attention and the care that they need. So I know what my limit is. Every houndsman's different. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where like these questions, like these questions start 
like I have no idea, right? Like the only like, thing I've ever known uh, on how to train a dog was, you know, if a dog uh, poops in your house and you, if you want it to be an indoor dog, you put its nose in it. Maybe you tap it with a uh, a uh, uh, a rolled up newspaper and then you throw it outside. And eventually, it understands that <laughs> you don't poop on the in the floor in the house. You go outside, right? What what is training? a coon hound or a, a, a hound that goes and chases bears and, and or bobcats or lions. Like what's that training process like? These dogs have got such a strong lineage, uh, genetic makeup of being prey driven. And they're, what they do, a lot of it is natural. Um, the fact that they, they, find, find a core, find their quarry. They follow the track. Uh, maybe they confront a bear in the woods and they stay with that bear until they can put enough pressure on it to put it up a tree or a mountain lion in the desert. That's all genetic makeup. And, and really the best houndsmen that I know pretty much just keep them, you know, you set your parameters. This is what we want you to chase. This is what you're not supposed to chase. And we just keep them between the lines and let, let, the genetics take over and do what they do. Um, you can't, you can't train a dog to go out and hunt either. They've got that prey drive in them to get away from you and go search out their quarry or they don't. Um, barking up a tree is such a strange, it's a recessive trait in canines for the most part. If you look back at coyotes or wolves, they don't bark um, when when they're hunting, but yet we are asking our hounds to go out there and open. You know, they they bark or they open on track when they when they find scent, and then <clears throat> they they continue to to bark as they're following the scent, and then that bark changes when they bring that that quarry to bay or in a tree. Wolves don't do that. So, so that is all credit to the genetic makeup and the, the concentrated breeding on our dogs and, and the way those hounds have been bred over, you know, what, a thousand years, a millennia. Yeah. You know, if you, if you look back to ancient Egypt and, and uh, Persia and uh, then on up into the Germanic stages of the early uh, first century, they were starting to develop this type of hound. And, and, uh, you know, it's pretty amazing when you look at the history of how far it really goes back to, uh, a utilitarian type need for these dogs and now what they've become today. Yeah. That, that is some, that is amazing. Now, when these dogs are out and about, right. I'm asking questions again that I, I don't know anything about. Are, do they work as a team? Like, okay, I'm going to flank over here and, and you're going to stay on the trail or do they all kind of flood towards an area? How do, do the dogs communicate with each other or are you a conduit for all the dogs? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of information there that you just threw at me. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you're talking about coon hounds in the East, it, it varies depends on it depends on what your goal is as a houndsman um if you're a coon hunter in the east the the most recent trends are to have a dog that's very independent that can 
go out and tree its own raccoon, can hunt by itself, will hunt by itself, doesn't depend on anything else. And that's largely driven by the uh, competition coon hunting world. Whereas you take a, a bear hunter from the Appalachians or the Rocky Mountains, and they need dogs that, that work together as a pack. You know, my, my buddy Shorty Gorm hunts bobcats in South Texas, and it's not unusual for him to put 12, 12 hounds on the ground at a time. Uh, the brush is so thick. He's got dogs scaring a whole entire area there. One of them barks when it when it finds the the scent of the of the bobcat, and the other hounds go to that area to help them uh, decipher that track. And not every hound is going to be right there at the very point where the one hound opened and said, "Hey, I found it." You know, some of them are swinging wide and trying to cut the cat off, and some of them are are you know making sure they're in a the backtrack there. So. If you, it, the, the nice thing about being a houndsman in the 21st century is Garmin uh, made this wonderful thing that we get to uh, look at and use to track GPS track our dogs. So we can actually sit and, and uh, uh, stand in the field and look on a screen and see which, how ma- what dog is doing what, you know, yeah. how, are, how are our dogs working together. And you can actually see it like – when you hunt with shorty, you can see which dogs are swing dogs and which dogs are track, you know, track dogs and things like that. So you can kind of build your pack around your needs. You need a, yeah. a dog. It's, 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 it's very complicated to get into, you know, if yeah. you take a, if you take a dog in the Southwest, for instance, the driest climate that we've got in North America and you go to the Southwest and you're lion hunting. Guys want a dog that they signify that that they they signify as a cold nosed hound, a dog that is going to be able to decipher the faintest amount of scent of that lion to move that lion out of there. Usually, those dogs can be very slow, uh, but they're meticulous and and they they're they may be tracking a lion that's two or three days old. Uh, the track itself, it's been two or three days since that that lines move through that area. So they've got to work very meticulous, very uh, methodical through that. Whereas, you know, once, once that hound works through that, then the other dogs are out looking ahead of them. Maybe they'll cut a fresher, fresher trail ahead of them. And, and so it's, it's constantly, you know, these houndsmen are constantly looking for ways to to improve their pack, augment their pack, and improve their success rates. Yeah. Again, interesting and very complex. You know, we're not going to be able to cover every, de- you know, every detail of hounds, you know, right. hound hunting on this. And that's why, you know, I have you on the Sportsman's Nation is to cover all that stuff. Um, but I kind of want to transition here while we have some time left. And uh, I want to talk about this trend that we're seeing whether it's in social media it's in um, all these new laws that are trying to ban uh, coon hunting you know any type of hunting with a dog Um, Mm -hmm. and it's a trend we're starting to see my question to you an avid houndsman um, why why all of a sudden this trend 
uh, of people wanting to cancel or get rid of hunting with dogs? I like your terminology, cancel. You know, we saw a news story here a couple weeks ago, Dan, of a, uh, a FedEx driver that delivered a package to a home in Illinois. And the, the, man, the, the man that lived there had a rock out front that said, uh, home of a coon hunter. And it became a news story because it wasn't politically correct. And um, I don't know if you want, want to get into this with me or not, but, <laughs> but when, we, when we're talking about legislative stuff, you know, uh, the reason hound hunting is always on the block, uh, chopping block, or it's always a topic of discussion, and there's several issues going on right now as we speak uh, where there are legislators who are trying to um, make laws to prohibit the use of hounds. For one thing, there's a huge misunderstanding in of what hound hunting is. And, you know, I hear people all the time, even other hunters say, you know, I would never hunt hounds or hunt bear with hounds because it's, it's not fair. Um, and so you've got even segments of the hunting community that is fails to understand or engage and to understand what this culture, this lifestyle is really all about. And so when you've got even people from the hunting community that have that towards of, uh, that type of attitude towards hunting with hounds, then the people that aren't in the hunting community are very disconnected. Yeah. And, and we've done a lot of that on our own. If you look at houndsmen, you know, if we look at the, the national trends in hunting, you know, right now about 5% of hunters uh, or 5% of the population are hunters. And so that's a very small piece of the pie. But but you take and you divide that houndsman slice out and you're talking less than 1% of, 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 of the, the 5%. population. Or, yeah. Okay. Of the five. Yeah. Of the five percent. Okay. Know, it's um, it's so so minute, and and really what's happened is, houndsmen have allowed the opposition to seize the narrative and and describe what hound hunting is, who we are, and what we do, and that was the main reason why I started the Houndsman XP podcast because I was tired of that. I was tired of other people trying to define who we are and what we do. And, um, that it was always wrong. It's like when you watch, watch a movie, uh, you know, a Hollywood movie that describes hunting, they always get it wrong. Yeah. And so we wanted to have a podcast that, that was factually based and told our story that controlled the narrative. And so when you look at these legislators, what happens is, um, there's a lot of different ways that the 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 anti-hunting crowd attacks this. One is they just do an all uh, uh, frontal assault. Let's ban bear hunting with hounds, and this just happened in in uh, Nevada. Uh, you had a group around Lake Tahoe that think Boo Boo and Yogi like being in their yard, and and they name them and and all this stuff, and and they just haven't had a confrontation with the bear yet. Um, but so they write a petition and then they get signatures on the petition. Uh, 
and they take it and they file it with uh, Nevada Fish and Game to try to stop hound hunting. So, so is this luckily, more? Is this is this attack more of them like people wanting to save the animals, or is it more of attacking dog hunters, and it or is it somehow a strange combination of both? It's a gateway. Okay, it's it's a gateway to stopping all hunting. The anti-hunting crowd will not be happy until we live in this big utopia and we go out and we can pet, pet you know, boo-boo and, and Bambi lays down beside the wolf and, and all this fantasy land that they live in. So hound hunting has been an easy mark. They expect us to be unorganized. They expect us to be uh, misinformed and have poor communication. Mm-hmm. And what we found is organizations like uh, Hunter Nation, Sportsman's Alliance, what we're doing with Houndsman XP, we are keeping people informed. And we've had huge successes this year, Dan. Huge. That's awesome. We defeat we defeated the petition in Nevada. Montana is actually passing a it's in the process right now. It's on I hate to say it, you know, be too confident here, but it's looking really good that they're actually gonna add hound hounds as an approved method to take black bears in the state of montana that's never happened that's awesome yeah so with all you know with with all that said right um you know and again you know we're just scratching the surface here with all that but then there's guys like me right i don't hound hunt um i uh, i i don't care about it I mean, what I mean by I don't care about it is uh, it's not something that I think about often. It's not my quote unquote passion, but I don't mind if other right. pe- if other people right. do that. And even on on uh, your podcast, uh, when I was on your podcast, I, I shared a story about how um, there's a, a hound hunter that comes through late October, early November, almost every year through the uh, um, through the, the the my main deer hunting property where all the big deer are. And, uh, every year he, you know, he comes through at that time, but I don't get mad because he has the same exact permission on that property that I do. So mm-hmm. in, in your opinion, why is it important even for guys like me or people who don't necessarily care about hound hunting to start to care about other hunting activities, especially hound hunting, um, that they're not necessarily involved with? I'm I'm glad you asked that question because I think there's a lot of work to do on both sides of this aisle, but we're the lowest rung on the ladder. Um, we're, we've got the deer hunting, deer hunting is quote unquote safe. It's a multi-billion dollar industry in the United States. Yeah. Hound hunting is a multi-million dollar industry. Um, but it, it doesn't even come close to generating the, finances that that white-tailed deer do so it's it's a very long shot to to think that deer hunting is threatened but the thing that i think that all hunters need to understand is right now these houndsmen are out here and they're the buffer between you if you're a deer hunter between you and the anti-hunting crowd you know I told somebody the other day, we had Luke Hilgeman from Sportsman's Nation, or I'm sorry, Hunter Nation, on the podcast the other day. 
and I told him in a side conversation, I said, houndsmen are like, are like Marines. They want to fight. You know, they're ready to fight. They don't care who they fight. And if you don't give them to somebody to somebody to fight, they'll fight amongst themselves. But we've got to get organized and we need the deer hunters to have our back to say, no, we are not giving up another inch to taking away freedoms from hunters. And we've, until we, until we bridge the gaps and unite as a hunting community, we will always be threatened. Yeah. Yeah. So what about, what's, what's your message then? And and you kind of just answered it there, but what's your message to, let's say a guy who I think it's Alabama or certain parts of uh, states in the South allow deer hunting with dogs. Right. And then Mm -hmm. there's always a guy out there who, you know, like who doesn't like that because it ruins his hunting uh, opportunity, or at least that's what they say. What, what is your message to people who feel like dog hunting is it's almost, it's a selfish kind of way, but uh, dog hunting is ruining their, their hunting. Yeah. I, so the first thing I tell people, and I tell this to the houndsman is that, if your dog gets where it's not supposed to be, there's only one person that's at fault here and that's you. Um, there isn't any way around that. Yeah. So, um, if you do not own that property and you don't have permission to be there, then you are the person that's at fault in this situation. If I don't, if I don't own the property, if, if, and I've got a perfect example, I've got a, I've got a neighbor who is, has got some property and he's managing for whitetails and things like that. I have to do my do, you know, my utmost best, my due diligence. I have to respect the property owner's rights there. Um, so I do have to alter my behavior during the periods that he doesn't want hounds on his place. Now, I think there is also a big misunderstanding, um, science backs it up that, uh, and also deer hunters who are in the know have backed it up that, you know, hounds running on property has zero impact on deer movement. And Josh McKellis just recorded a podcast with an outfitter from, uh, North central Missouri and Southern Iowa that, um, he's a white-tailed deer hunter and he can tell you, I've got, I've got pictures of a houndsman on my camera at midnight and I've got a guy, guy taking a 170 class whitetail from the same plot that he got his picture taken in at seven 30 or eight o'clock the next morning. So, you know, a lot of things are beyond our control and, and, um, but as far as you're talking, you know, deep South type stuff, houndsmen have to be conscious of, of landowner, rights and there has to be a mutual respect there that hey i do not want my hound here i it's it's my fault but on the flip side of that deer hunters need to understand that there there are things that happen and there are limitations to the amount of control we can have i personally would not want a dog that would just quit a track because because i said you know because i i i I whistled to him yeah. nonchalantly. Yeah. So, uh, and then that the whole public land thing, right? Obviously, you have the right to be there. A deer hunter has a right to be there. Um, 
from your from your experience, are seasons where uh, a houndsman can run their dogs on um, on a property, whether it's for you know game like deer or it's uh, coons or bear or whatever. Uh, do they have their own type of seasons outside of the regular hunting season, or are they all kind of mixed in uh, with each other? Well, see, they're in the, they're in a regular hunting season. Okay, so <laughs> so coon hunting you know, is all year round for the most part. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, a regular hunting season. Maybe I wouldn't track them what you're saying, but uh, public land is public land, and we we need to respect the fact that that there are multiple users right multi-users on that property yeah. uh whether it be a uh, you know then mountain ebo trail goes right through a, an area where i deer hunted cut my teeth deer hunting and now you go down there i was down there during the opening weekend of firearm season and the parking lot was full of suvs with bike racks on them so they're riding bikes up and down this trail yeah. It's like, hey, didn't anybody tell them deer season's in? They should, you know, <laughs> it's my turn. Right, right. Uh, but in my experience, Dan, houndsmen uh, don't want that conflict. Yeah. Uh, as a rule, I'm, and there's exceptions to every rule, but you take a guy that squirrel hunts with, with dogs. The last thing we want to do is interfere with another guy's, an, another sportsman's hunt. But above that, we don't want to have our dogs out there. We don't want to put them at risk either. Yeah. You know, and, and just like there's except most hunters are not going to shoot another sportsman's dog, but there's exceptions to every rule. Yeah. So why would I take a chance? So there's got to be a mutual respect there. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Well, we're getting down to a crunch time here and I want to kind of ask you a very high level question and I want to end on a positive note. Yeah. What is your favorite thing, if you can think of it, about hound hunting or coon hunting? You know, being a houndsman is a lifelong journey. Uh, being a hunter is a lifelong journey. And um, uh, if, if, if you ever get to the point where you think I've arrived, then you probably ought to just hang up your bow, hang up your rifle, hang up your leash and, and do something else. Because... Uh, Every hunt is new. Every dog that you offers uh, uh, new challenges or new experiences. Um, you know, there's been several times in my hound hunting career that I, I found places where uh, I didn't know existed. They take because the lion, the coon, the bear, they don't care. They're going to those wild places and you've got to follow your hounds into those places and you see some amazing country and and you actually find places to deer hunt and and elk hunt and things like that so uh uh places that, that if i was just standing on a road in gibbonsville idaho and looking down i'd be thinking i'm not going down in there but your hounds retreat down so down there so now you have to go and you find the elk better you find the mule deer better you find and then you can go back there and so it's it's just a non-stop adventure yeah um uh, and, and probably the, the pinnacle is when you start uh, breeding and raising your own hounds and you see your hard work and your, your breeding program starting to take off. And um, that's very rewarding. Yeah. It's, I, I'm going to share two quick funny stories. And I think this is going to kind of 
elevate where your passion is at. Uh, can you remember when, um, when we first started uh, our working together and you sent me the, uh, like it was one of the first episodes and it was like this ongoing introduction of dogs barking. And I was just like, uh-huh. hey, hey guys, you might want to, you might <laughs> want to, uh, shut that down or, you know, cut that off because it's, it's long, it's a long intro. And you're like, nope, not going to do it because hound hunters <laughs> love that sound. And I'm like, okay, I guess whatever. And, and, and I thought to myself, I felt like such a dumbass after that because I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't know what a hound hunter likes or dislikes. And here I am trying to right. tell this guy what to do on his own podcast. And, uh, and so, <laughs> That I thought that was kind of cool, and then uh, that, that was funny. Yeah, you know, we 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 spend hours and months and hoping to hear that dog give us that sound, right? To walk to, and so yeah, that was that was hilarious. Yeah, and then the last thing is, um, my only coon hunt I've ever been on. We, uh, I'm with one of my buddies, and his dad had I don't even know what breed they are. Um, that you know they looked like a popular they're blue and gray or like a a gray and black type mix or something like that blue tick blue tick probably yeah and uh he gets them out and he he had an old radio collar on one of them and right. he had something that must have it like a beep beep well that's yeah, elementary yeah mm-hmm. so we get we let them out they go down into this You're dating yourself dan yeah we go, uh, well, he's dating himself, right? I was in my early, I was born in 1980. He was, I was in my twenties. So this was early two thousands and his dog, wow. their dogs just take off, just yeah. take off. And so here we are trying to, you know, go on, go on behind them. There's probably six of them, seven of them. And they swim a river. They jump into the river and they go right across it to the other side. And it's dark yeah. out. And I'm just like, now what? He's like, now we got to go get him. And so we, we hiked back up the hill, get in his car, and we didn't find him for like eight hours. And we were out all night long trying to find, finally we got him and got him back into this little truck that he had. And oh man, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy night. I'll tell you that. It seems like you always have hunts like that. If you, if, if you've got somebody bugging you to go coon hunt that yeah. you really don't want to take. Then you find do- people with dogs like that to take them with. <laughs> but but the other story is it's oh, the flip side of that is it seems like when you're really wanting to impress somebody, you have this big dud hunt. I yeah. mean, it, nothing goes right. Yeah. Oh, it was. It, I tell you what, it was fun. It was memorable though, and it's something that. And I know you've offered it up, and I'm gonna definitely take you up on it uh, at some point uh, because it's something that I want to go uh, go do again and and probably do it the right way uh is uh going a coon hunt but uh yeah yeah i tell you what chris man i i first off thank you for your content on the sportsman's nation excellent uh excellent content so if you want to go thank you uh find out more about uh the houndsman x uh chris here and the houndsman xp podcast you can do that on the sportsman's nation itunes wherever you find it and and uh chris thank you for your time today really appreciate you and uh yeah thanks well, I've really appreciated our partnership, Dan, and, and uh, everything that you've done for us as well. So the feeling's mutual. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Chris. Please go follow uh, what he's doing over there at the Houndsman XP podcast. Follow him on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. And, you know, just uh, just understand that there's more 
there's more people out there who are enjoying the outdoors than just us deer hunters you know just us big game or turkey hunters right there's other people doing it different ways and they're part of our community and we should support them so when we see a bill that's getting the te- like a bill trying to ban uh, uh dog hunting in some way shape or form we need to step up and, and say hey these are our brothers we need to uh, support them in their decision and uh not uh, you know and their culture their heritage and their right to to do this um just like we would hope that the certain people banned with us when uh, they attack deer hunting in some way, shape, or form in the future. So uh, just keep that in mind. A huge shout out to all the partners of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, Ozonix, Vortex, and Wasp. Please go out and support those companies because they support me. And um, other than that, man, big things coming from the Sportsman's Nation, so keep an eye out there. Send good vibes out into the world, and I guarantee you're going to get good vibes back. And uh, just be thankful uh, that you live in the country that you live in and that you have family and and you're healthy. And if you're not healthy, send those good vibes out, man. Uh, You'll be surprised how that makes you feel. So uh, we'll talk to you next time.